Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good evening, and welcome to Foment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izette. And I'm Chris Kuzmi. And we co-host this <laughs> weekly adventure through the whole world of fermentation. We're on live every Monday night at 7 p.m. on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We're also archived and on iTunes. And you yep, can find us. as well as HeritageRadioNetwork.org. So we've got a couple of brief announcements today. The first is Cider Week. New York Cider Week is... Right now. Yeah, started on Friday. There's an amazing amount of events going on. There's a ton of cider makers in the city this week doing dinners and tastings and talks and all kinds of good stuff. So go to ciderweekny.com, check out the lineup of um, events, and get out there and, and try some delicious cider. And the New York City Homebrewers Guild 25th anniversary is this year. We're really excited to celebrate it at Brooklyn Brewery on November 2nd. Uh, there'll be a bunch of homebrew clubs from the area there, uh, as well as Garrett Oliver and a bunch of Brooklyn beers. The tickets are $25 for 25 years, and uh, you can find more, more information on that at nychomebrew.com. And lastly, on November 5th, I will be teaching an alternative fermentations class at Brooklyn Homebrew. So if you're interested in learning how to make your own water kefir, kombucha, whey fermented soda, and a lot of other interesting alternative fermented beverages, please uh, go to brooklynhomebrew.com and check out the class on November 5th. That was almost lastly. But the lastly, <laughs> lastly, is uh, we're doing a fermentation competition oh, at yeah. Jimmy's Number 43 at, uh, in December, on December 8th. Uh, we mentioned before that we're going to do Chocktoberfest, uh, but uh, that was too close to the Guild anniversary and a bunch of other things. Uh, too complicated to manage in October. It is now for, for October, or December 8th. Uh, anything chocolate fermented and uh, preferably with our with our uh, one of our sponsors divine cocoa uh, divine if you make it with divine yep. chocolate and USA. yeah and it, if you would like to enter and use divine cocoa they have some products that are available to you for free for you to turn into something fermented with your entry and we have prizes we have a few hundred dollars worth of prizes so it should be fun cash and Mary just remarked that she's actually going to make a chocolate cider from the book that we'll be discussing today with our good friend Drew Beecham, who I think is online. Drew. Hello. Drew, how are you doing, man? Hey, Drew. How's it going? <laughs> Thanks for... I'm sitting here. I'm looking at the Cider Week New York uh, uh, website, and I have to admit, I'm a little jealous. <laughs> it's pretty insane. We had a great <laughs> night on Saturday night at Jimmy's and 43 talking to uh, Steve Woods from Poverty Hill uh, Orchards and Poverty Lane Farms. And, uh, Farnham Hill. Farnham Hill. Uh, and, and Greg Hall from Greg Hall, man, who's doing really very fun stuff. Yeah. How long have you been making cider, Drew? <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, I think we can go all the way back to really the start of when I started brewing, I think. So that would be about 1999. That's awesome. When did you join the Falcons? You're part of the... What, first of all, tell us about the, uh, the Maltos, Maltos Falcons. Falcons. 
Oh, yeah, uh, the uh, Maltos Falcons, uh, America's oldest home brewing club. Uh, we actually turn uh, 40 next year. And um, based out of Woodland Hills and uh, just outside of Los Angeles, California. And, uh, I mean, it was originally started, you know, the homebrew club. You know, a lot, of, a lot of guys who were really into beer, you know, a couple of folks had been over to Europe and come back and realized they couldn't get the beer that they loved here, and so they turned around and they started making their own beer. And so a lot of collaboration, a lot of really kind of early teaching. And, in fact, if you go back and you look at our old newsletters, it's, you read some of the stuff that they're talking about, and it's like, oh, God, no, you guys had that really wrong. <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they went through a whole process of discovery, and, and uh, the club's been around that, that long. And, of course, you know, I think you find naturally, you know, with people who are involved in any sort of fermentation, at some point in time your brain just starts to wander along the other fields of fermentation. And the next thing you know, you've got everything that can be fermented fermenting somewhere around you. And so that, that kind of happened naturally with me and cider and mead and sake and everything else that you can think of. So, um, but yeah, the, the, clubs, uh, the clubs have been in my home since 1999. I just kind of uh, walked into the homebrew shop and went, uh, yeah, I think I want to make beer. And next thing you know, the, oh, we've got this club. And then I joined them, and the rest has been history. And, and you went to cider right around then? Yeah, uh, that, that, fall, uh, that fall. You know, I think I started fermenting uh, beer in March. Of 99, and then when the fall came around, I went, the apple juice will ferment. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know how that goes. I've, I mentioned this before a couple of times on the radio. My first fermentation was actually, uh, I went to a boarding arts, arts high school in Michigan to study uh, study saxophone. Um, and, uh, you know, one, on one of the breaks, I walked to the, the farmer's market or corner store, and we got we got some cider, and we brought a jug of cider. Uh, uh, you know, not, it wasn't hard cider yet. And I took it to the, to, threw it in our closet, spit in it. And then let it sit for a month, and then voila. <laughs> it's easy to get started, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it certainly is. But, uh, it's one of the things that makes me laugh, uh, you know, that, you know, since so many brewers are into making cider as well, you know, it's funny because we've spent so much time as brewers learning all these very complicated ways to make a make a beverage happen. And in the meanwhile, there are things out there like wine and cider and, and mead that just kind of seem to want to happen on their own without us having to do much of anything. That's right. And to, there are several different kinds of cider. In your in your everything cider book, uh, what prompted that? Uh, you know, kind of looking around and realizing that um, you know I went to school in Boston, and uh, that was you know some odd time ago now. Uh, but even back then, you know, people kept going, "Oh, well, you know, cider will be the next big thing." And you know that was again like twenty years ago, and you know twenty years ago, still cider was not the next big thing. And but in the past couple of years, uh, say probably about the past four or five years, really starting to see some action. I mean, you know, for the longest time, it, it felt like you know Farnham Hill were like the really the only people out there, like in New England, who were doing like real old fashioned actual cider, and everybody else was kind of taking the woodchuck model and making you know sweet alcohol. And um, you know, so but now looking, it, there's this explosion, and you can see it from looking at the Cider Week uh, uh, website debated a lot about why that is. And, you know, part of it is, I think, you know, now that people have started to pay attention to what it is that they're eating and what they're drinking, you know, not everybody's going to catch on to craft beer. You know, not everybody's going to love, a, you know, a 12% hot monster with 145 IBUs. You know, some people want something that's a little bit sweeter, and there's absolutely no reason that cider can't fill that gap because cider falls into a nice little, you know, hole that's out there. You know, if you want something that's a little sweeter and a little fruity, you know, typically people would always say, oh, go have a wine. Uh, but, you know, even the weakest wines are, you know, typically somewhere around 10%, and most wine falls in the 12 to 14% category. 
if you're trying to sit there and drink glass for glass with everybody else who's enjoying a beer, you're pretty quickly going to end up under the table. <laughs> and cider is kind of a nice thing of, you know, something that's a little fruity, a little sweet, but also, you know, at that beer strength, usually, unless you want to play with it. And, you know, it allows you to kind of sit there and enjoy, enjoy a pint with your friends. But also, the other thing that seems to be happening is the rise of, you know, gluten knowledge. Right? Yeah. So we have a lot of people out there who are, you know, either diagnosed as celiacs or some other form of uh, gluten intolerance. There are other people who may not be gluten intolerant, but they're exploring a gluten-free lifestyle. And, you know, one of the things that you quickly miss is beer. And as great as the guys are doing, you know, coming up with good gluten-free beer types, it doesn't quite work yet. You know, it's kind of like where organic beer was about, you know, 10 years ago. It's kind of there, not quite. Right. And cider is naturally gluten-free. So, you know, it's, I think you're seeing kind of this sort of circling vortex of people interested in good taste, people wanting something that isn't necessarily beer, and people who are, you know, looking at gluten-free lifestyles, you know, all kind of combining together, and the next thing you know, boom, cider. And so when I saw that happening, it was like, I went and I looked at all the cider books that were out there on the market, and they all seemed to follow the same approach, which is, in order to make good cider, you must start with a good apple. Yeah. <laughs> in, order to start with, in order to start with good apples, you must first grow an orchard. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I don't know about you. Uh, I'm assuming that, you know, living in New York, you don't really have a lot of space to grow your own orchard. <laughs> like no uh, space? <laughs> we have one on our fire escape. It's yeah. cool. Yeah. 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 I've planted an apple orchard on my fire escape. I hope my neighbors don't mind. <laughs> right. uh, and, you know, I mean, I've got my little house in, in Pasadena, and, you know, not a lot of space to grow an orchard there either. And um, so really kind of figure out, well, okay, great, I can't get good apples, what the hell do I do? And that's what motivated the book. It's, it's pretty awesome. It's a, it seems like a very approachable book uh, from that from that respect. Well, the other thing is, because I also have a decent selection of cider books at home, and like you said, not only do they, you know, where you have to start with growing your own apples, and they want particular, you know, apple uh, varieties, but they don't, they're, it's, they're not very creative. They're more traditional cider books. And your this book, first of all, you start with the basics, um, and then you go into all kinds of things from types of sugar to um, all kinds of interesting, unusual ingredients, cider cocktails, cooking with cider. I mean, this book, I have it in front of me on my, on my iPad, actually. Um, and, I mean, you run through the gamut. You cover, this is definitely the most comprehensive hard cider book I've ever seen. Yeah, me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that was uh, that was the idea. I think one of the other things is, yeah, you see the, a lot of those, a lot of the other starter books, and you know, you can learn a lot about tree maintenance and you know, the pressing and grinding and all that from those books, and they're and they're absolutely fantastic. I would, I would say, if you if you really want to do the the nuts and bolts of, you know, you know, cider from apples and everything else, you know, the book that I wrote is a good start. And then if you're really wanting to be nutty and, and learn about slimy mold and you know, pulping and and all that. You know, absolutely take a look at the books from like Andrew Lee and and Ben Watson and Annie Pollock's, because those are those are really great in-depth resources. This book was really kind of designed to be you know the hey I'm going to get started making uh, cider, and really also kind of treating cider with the same sort of creativity that we bring to beer or to mead or anything else. Right. Well, I mean we're urban brewers, so and that's what what a lot of people. In obviously in New York City are, but around the country, or they don't, they don't just don't have the time. They want to make something handcrafted 
that's beautifully drinkable, but they don't necessarily have the time and or the space to devote to it. So I think this is definitely a, a great place to start. Well, and end. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Did, do, so... Let's let's go to some of this making cider then. You know, okay. what are the basics of making cider, and when we consider different styles of cider, uh, you know, what are what are we looking at, and how to do it at home? Yeah, where do you suggest people start that have never made cider before? Well, one of the great things about cider, as opposed to you know, say beer making, is you can do it in about twenty minutes. Uh, you can do it with ingredients that you can find just about anywhere, and you know, really, it doesn't. It doesn't take a lot of immediate concentration, and it also really, really you know, lends itself to kind of smaller batch making. Uh, you know, it, despite all the one-gallon brewing stuff that's happening now, you know, uh, beer making still seems to be centered around this whole idea of five gallons, uh, which is somewhat impractical if you live in a tiny space, right. uh, but or if you don't necessarily want to invest all this manual labor and everything. Right. By yeah. far and away, the one place I absolutely agree with uh, with all the other cider books that are out there is if you want to make good cider, you have to start with the best juice you can find. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to go out and you have to find you know, juice that's made with Kingston Blacks and Northern Spies and Wicks and Crab Apples and all pressed together in a beautiful, picturesque mill and you know, somewhere in upstate New York or upstate mountains somewhere, wherever you live. Uh, but you do really want to find good juice, and obviously the best sources for that are any orchard out there. Uh, most of the orchards that, that you're going to see in the fall are still focused on the culinary apples, the ones that you can get in the grocery store, your pink ladies, your red deliciouses, all those. And they make perfectly fine juice. It's just kind of bland. Uh, but there are ways to fix that. And then, you know, if you can't do that, you can find your your, your local farmer market. Chris, you just had mentioned it. Yeah, uh, Really, the best uh, that you can find is that fresh, unpasteurized juice. Um, talk about the pasteurization a little bit. And then barring that, if you can't find the stuff from the orchard, you can't find the stuff from the farmer's market, then that's when you break down and you go to you know the, the Whole Foods or your local organic co-op where they're going to make you pay $900,000 per gallon, and you get the juice from there. Um, I do know that there are people who make it all the way down the chain, all the way to the stuff that you can find at Target that comes from apples grown in China with sugar in them and, you know, you know sometimes sold for $0.99 cents a gallon and terrifies me. Um <laughs> But, yeah, you know, and there are even some people who make it out of apple concentrate, but we won't talk about those people. Um, <laughs> but in reality, the main thing is fresh first and then everything else. Uh, worry about varieties if you're so lucky. Uh, the other thing that you do have to be careful of is you have to absolutely make sure that the cider has no preservatives in it. And when I say no preservatives, uh, I mean no potassium sorbate and no sodium benzoate. Those are, uh, those are two chemicals, and I think I mentioned them probably somewhere close to about 500 times inside the book. <laughs> uh, no, sodium, no sodium benzoate, no potassium sorbate. They both interfere with, um, with yeast reproduction and will make it so that the, the cider itself won't ferment. And oh, by the way, can we talk about that real quick? Yeah. Folks, can we just stop referring to hard cider as hard cider and <laughs> unfiltered apple juice as cider? <laughs> I, feel you on that. Yes. I feel you on that. Uh, but you, they, uh, that. You, they had to make your book hard cider, right? Despite despite the pleas. Yeah, I know. I I I fought them on it, and they still uh, they they still did it because I, I I think like in the in the first chapter, I even say, look, every time I say cider, get into your heads. I mean something with alcohol. <laughs> I, I mean the 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 change that change happened just pre prohibition in the nineteen uh, late nineteen teens, 
And it was all a neo actually original prohibitionist. It was all a prohibitionist way of trying to get people away from cider. And they did it at the same time that they plowed up a lot of the old cider apple orchards around the country. Yep. So cider has alcohol. It's juice otherwise. Uh-huh. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back with you in just a minute. We'll talk more about pasteurization and and, uh, and the whole jam. Thanks, man. See you in bacon. a second. Bacon. Bacon. Chocolate. Love. Apples. August for the past 10 years, Heritage Foods USA has had the great honor of announcing the arrival of a new generation of Good Shepherd Ranch Heritage turkeys and a new chapter in the history of an endangered species. You have to eat them to save them. While many farmers now use the term, Frank Reese and his team raised the truest example of the original Heritage Turkey. According to the USDA, they remain the only farm allowed to use the name Heritage on their label. We hope you reserve your healthy, naturally mating, flying, standard bronze, bourbon red, white holland, slate, black, or narragansett turkey today. Let's do it again and support the brightest hope for the turkey. We guarantee these are the best tasting turkeys ever or your money back. Prices start at $75. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Welcome back to Ferment About It on Heritage Radio Network. .org. We're here with Drew Beecham, the author of the new The Everything Hard Cider book, All You Need to Know About Making Hard Cider at Home. Welcome back, Drew. Well, thank you. <laughs> you still here. You're actually here in the studio with you. I just sent you a picture. You have your picture up right in front of a microphone. It's beautiful. <laughs> oh. So we've talked a little bit about cider sources or juice sources, sorry. Juice sources, um, and definitely not to get any with preservatives. Let's talk a little bit about yeast. Yeah. Um, all right. So now uh, this is one of those uh, things that you always read. You know, people will uh, fret and frant about uh, you know how to how to yeast their ciders. Um, for the most part, it's, it, it doesn't matter that much. I, uh, you know, you'll see people who the second they get like a fresh cider that hasn't been pasteurized, first thing they'll do is they'll hit it with a ton of sulfite, right? Because they uh, they've read that's what you're supposed to do, uh, and that's a technique that comes from uh, the winemaking world. It's all about suppressing the natural yeasts that are carried inside the apples themselves. Uh, and, you know, it, as you know, you know if, you, if you get a jug of fresh unpasteurized cider and you just leave it somewhere kind of cool for a day or two, come back, it starts to get a little spritzy, and that's because the yeast itself is taking off. Mm-hmm. Um, what I tend to do, I, I, I'm not a fan of sulfite. Uh, I'm not a fan of pasteurization. I think pasteurization destroys flavor. Uh, what I always love to do, and I talk about in the book, uh, at least for one of the recipes, is I like to take a fresh batch of juice, 
and let it sit for about 24 to 48 hours without touching it. You know, I get it into the, my fermenter, whether a carboy or a bucket or whatever. Let it sit for 28, uh, 24 to 48 hours and let the natural uh, yeast there in from the, the orchard take a hold just a little bit. You know, they're kind of weak and they're kind of stunted and they're not really going to do a lot of damage with that at that point. But what they will do is they'll start to produce some very kind of really earthy flavors. You know, kind of think almost like a lambic, like how you, how you start to get some of that funk. Mm-hmm. And then hit it with, you know, take your pick, a nice uh, white wine dry yeast, uh, a beer yeast. I'm not actually a fan of cider yeast. I think most of the cider yeast from the, from the yeast companies are really just uh, white wine yeast, given a different name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just, you know, get a, get a pack of USO5, get a pack of uh, uh, Lavalon uh, 71B or Red Star Cote de Blanc. Uh, and rehydrate that, treat it correctly, and get it into the into the cider after 24 to 48 hours. And what that will do is the cultured Saccharomyces that you've just generated or that you've just added will quickly overwhelm anything natural uh, from the orchard and will kind of stunt their ability to take the cider in a really funky direction. And so what you get is you get a little bit of funk, a little bit of earthiness, that kind of that orchardy type feeling, and then the clean cider break in the fat, in the back. And so you get this nice melange of the two. I love that. Yeah, that's great advice. Because um, I think that is the number one complaint about people who, you know, I've used, I mean, I've used a variety of, of different yeast, from wild yeast to yeast I've cultured from organic apples to beer yeast to, to champagne yeast. And champagne yeast is very common, but a lot of times people complain that it dries out. We actually talked to Chris Banker earlier this year about his cider experiments, or the, I believe it was the quaff club experiments i don't know if you went to his cider talk at nhc but they did a series of um you know experiments with different yeast and they also the most the most popular were some of the english or actually i think it was the edinburgh yeast that was the most popular with people so i think that's one thing that a lot of people feel when they first start making cider they're they just automatically go to either a cider or a champagne yeast and they don't think about that they can use other yeast so i think that's really important besides finding the right juice how about pitching rates with these yeasts? Are they comparable to, I mean, they're pretty much equal to uh, what you would do with the same uh, gravity readings as with ales, with beer? Yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty close. Uh, again, with cider, uh, part of the challenge is that we're really making a wine. We're just making a table strength wine. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit closer to wine pitching uh, levels, and so those uh, those numbers are included in the book itself. Uh, but I, I think, you know, the, it's so fungible that, you know, really, if you're going by beer rules, you'll be fine. Um, I think the other thing that a lot of people forget is the nutrient, um, which I consider to be very important. You'd never make a mead without a nutrient. You'd never make wine without nutrient. Right. And you shouldn't make you shouldn't make a cider without nutrient. Um, and so I've become a fan of doing uh, what I've always referred to as the Ken Schramm staggered method, uh, where you take your uh, your nutrient doses and divide it into eight equal portions. And add it, you know, every twelve hours for the first four days, um, and it turns out that's not actually Ken Schramm's original invention. But I forget the name of the person who invented it right now. But uh, I'll probably keep calling it the Ken Schramm method until the day I die. <laughs> <laughs> so, Fair enough. <laughs> I've never. Yeah, used... I think the combination of those two things is very important. And how long? Also... Do you find that speeds oh. up the cider making yeah. process like it does in mead? Yeah, I do. I I find that if you if you do the staggered process, or at the very least, remember your nutrient. Um, you will get your cider ready to go a, a lot faster. You know, like if you read a lot of the rules on the internet, people are talking about oh, you know take uh, take your juice, pitch your yeast, 
you know, cover it with a balloon or whatever, and you know, walk away for six months and come back and you have cider. Um, I think you can you can end up getting a very drinkable mead in under a month if you remember to do your nutrients correctly. Right. Um, there's no there's no reason to go sit there on this stuff for six months. The reason why they they sat on it for six months back in the day was they didn't have proper cultures, they didn't have yeast nutrient, and they had to wait for everything to kind of fall clear of the sickness you know, that you get with wild with wild yeast. Mm-hmm. So you know, stop waiting that long. What is the shortest uh, then then we could expect a cider a five percent cider? Uh, I'm trying to remember if I included the uh, included the aqua cider in there or not. Uh, but I've, I've turned around a a week you know a weaker table uh, table s cider in about you know two and a half weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But of course, uh, I also get to cheat and use my kegs. So right. if you don't have kegs, <laughs> uh, sorry. Right. If you want sparkling, then it would be another two weeks after that, or a week after that, to bottle condition. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, and I will say uh, one uh, one other additional caution on the yeast. Uh, a lot of people will go in, uh, and I did this when I was first doing a lot of experimenting. You know, obviously, I'm a saison head, uh, and I went and I made cider, and I pitched in a couple of saison yeast, going, "Yes, I will make farmhouse cider, and it will taste like a saison, and this will be awesome." And when I got the final product, I was a little disappointed because it had a little bit of the saison character, but not a lot. It was very muted, mm-hmm. and I had to I had to go reach back into the back of my brain, the part that's actually a scientist, and go, oh yeah, that's right, precursors. Um, <laughs> so uh, what a lot of people will tend to forget is that the reason why beer yeasts make very particular flavors is because they have precursor chemicals that they find in a malt beverage that the yeast then manipulate and spit out the flavors that we want. Um, and those same precursor chemicals are not in cider. <laughs> so. You can expect if you're going to use your favorite beer yeast that you're probably going to get a slightly different flavor profile out of it than, than you were expecting, or at least a much more muted version of that flavor profile. So don't be disappointed and, and take that to heart. Yeah, that's right. awesome to note, actually. That's great <laughs> yeah. to note. Uh, despite, despite, despite fermentation temperatures, right? Yeah, despite fermentation. I mean, you, can, you, can run a, you, you could run it completely high. and I mean, you'll get fusel alcohol, so don't run it high. Right. Uh, you know. <laughs> but you're not going to get the ester and phenol production that you would with a beer. You're equivalent yeah. of malted. Um, barley beverage. So one of the favorite things, my favorite things about this book is that you have, you use a lot of unusual ingredients. So let's go, move to the creative chapters of this uh, yes. book. So this everything, is... so as Chris mentioned, um, we have a, a chocolate fermented competition. goodness competition, yeah. which basically covers anything fermented, non-alcoholic to alcoholic, bread to cheese to mead to cider to, to beer. Kefir. Anything. Uh, yeah. Um chocolate kimchi for all we That's know right. uh but anyway so i'm gonna i was planning on making a, a cocoa short mead as well mm-hmm. as a cocoa cider and you have an excellent recipe in your book you oh so you actually recommend making a tincture with the cocoa is that correct yeah i do you know i, I discovered this uh technique a few years ago when uh when i was doing a beer and i'd, I'd done a couple of uh, cacao nib uh, porters about nine ten years ago and did the you know did the usual thing and left on for too long because I got lazy and life got too busy and right. next thing you know I'd had, I'd had a, a beer on the cow nibs for a month and came back and oh my god it was horrible Ooh, uh, just yeah. too much uh, too much tan and too much uh, yeah. too much bitterness dearth and <laughs> I, I ended uh, by the way good tip to everybody who ever does that uh, a seven fifty of uh, raspberry schnapps added to a keg of uh, over cocoa that uh, porter works like a charm <laughs> uh, fantastic. But um, 
Yeah, so what I, what I did was uh, I started making uh, uh, cacao extract, effectively. And it's super easy to do, and it allows you a lot of control. And I know there are people out there who have all this macho brio of, well, if it doesn't go in raw into the, into the fermenter, then it's cheating somehow. Uh, I don't care. Um, We're so what there. I do... We completely agree. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'd rather have more control over what I'm going to get, you know, since, hey, you know, this is my time I'm spending. Uh, but the, the cacao extract is really super simple to do. You, you basically you take uh, six ounces of, you know, uh, vodka. Don't go buy pop-off. Go buy something a little bit better than pop-off. Uh, take uh, three ounces of cacao nibs, you know, nice uh, uh, raw cacao nibs, and a vanilla bean, split and scrape. Toss all that together in a mason jar. Uh, the ball company sells plastic lids for mason jars, which are awesome. Yep. Uh, screw, them, uh, screw them on and just shake the living bejesus out of it. And you let that go for seven, 11 days, something like that. Um, or I think actually I do it split. I think I do the vanilla and then I add the cacao. Anyway, look in the bucket, it's in there. But, uh, you know, ca- uh, vanilla, cacao, total of about 11 days, 14 days. And then the trick that I discovered was, of course, Ethanol is a great uh, solvent, but it also takes out the fat that's in the nibs, and we, I don't really want the fat in there. So uh, because it's pure alcohol, throw that in the freezer, and you let it sit in the freezer for the, a couple of days, and what will happen is all those cocoa solids will freeze at the top as a, a fat cap. And, and then you just scrape that out, pull it, and boom, you now have a not sweet but very chocolatey extract. And then you can dose that into your starter. Cool. I'm going to try that. The other thing I was thinking about is I've come across some recipes for people, but actually instead, if you want to use just plain cocoa powder, mm-hmm. which we will be using, um, you can make like a chocolate syrup with either sugar, honey, or actually I think I could do it with concentrated apple juice. Same thing mm-hmm. as a vehicle and then use that. Uh, so I haven't yep. done that yet, but that's what I'm thinking about. Now, this is my most intriguing recipe is your pig and apples recipe. <laughs> so it. this uses three strips of bacon and four ounces of bourbon in addition to, you know, your, your basic cider recipe. Did you actually mm-hmm. make this? Yes, I did. And how does it taste? Piggy. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 you know, it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of these things where it, it's the first time I came across the concept, I was like, um, I don't know if I should really unleash this on the world. Um, but I decided I had to. It, it comes. It comes actually from uh, from history. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that you know they used to basically throw a side of pork into a cider barrel. Right. And and you know because they're like, oh, the cider's not fermenting. It's uh, too sweet or it's too sickly. And they, uh, what they didn't realize at the time was what they were doing was they were adding protein into the cider. And when they added the protein, it allowed the yeast to kind of continue about their job and then clarify. And so this was a, a very big thing that they uh, that they loved to do. And <laughs> so I went, okay, I guess we're going to go there. <laughs> and and fo- followed it right down the path. And, you know, the uh, bourbon and bacon is kind of a great combination because you get the, the, the double smoking. Yep. Um, and I think I, I think it just works like a charm. And let's, let's face it, eggs and apples. It works. <laughs> I want to try it. I mean, come on. Not alone. Yeah. Not alone. And, well, and for that, I also do the same freezing process again because, you know, bacon does have fat, yeah. as much as I hate to admit it. So uh, I do like to, to do the freezing to get rid of the fat as well. Yeah, that makes sense. That's what I've done, too, when I've done bur- – actually, I've done bacon-infused bourbon, so same thing. Fridge and then, you know uh, – actually, I've done it in the fridge, and you can just uh, – 
and then filter the the alcohol but freezing works better for sure it's a solid fat ice chip right yeah (laughs) so um thank you so much drew for talking to us about your cider book we definitely want to have you on on a future show to talk all about saisons because you're a wealth of knowledge for saisons where can we get this book uh, you can get it anywhere, anywhere that your heart uh, desires, uh, including uh, Amazon and all your other fine retail establishments. Yep. Available on Kindle Edition, which is my favorite <laughs> way to buy books these days, as well as um, regular paper. Drew Beecham, yeah, thank I, you. I, I actually have to go get it on Kindle. Nice. It's, I mean, the thing is, then I carry it with me everywhere. It's on my iPhone. It's on my iPad. Like, you can never be without your favorite books. We carry Drew with us everywhere now. <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much. All of you who are out there in New York City, please get out and meet some of these amazing cider makers that are in town, including Greg Hall and Steve Woods and uh, the guy from Aaron Burr, Andy Brennan. I mean, amazing cider makers in town this week. Amazing events. Please, if you're interested in making cider, grab Drew's book, and uh, we'll see you next, or we'll talk to you next week, 7 p.m. On for men about it. HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks, Drew Beecham. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.